Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Now write this to the angel of the church at Ephesus. This is the important message to you from the one who holds the seven stars. He holds them carefully in his right hand. He walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know everything that you do. You have worked so much for me and continue to work patiently. I know that you do not accept bad people as your friends. Some of these bad people say that they are apostles of Jesus. You have thought carefully about what they teach people and you have discovered that it is not true. You've been patient and strong in times of trouble. You have continued to serve me because you believe in me. You have not stopped because the work is too much. But I have something to say against you. You walked away from your first love. Why? What's going on with you anyway? Do you have any idea how far you've fallen? Turn back. Recover your dear early love. Do again the good things that you did at the beginning. No time to waste, for I'm well on my way to removing your light from the golden circle. You do have this to your credit. You hate this Nicolaitan business. Rest assured that I hate their behavior as well. Think carefully about this. God's spirit is now speaking to people in the churches. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the voice of the spirit blowing like a wind in the churches. You should recognize that the spirit is speaking. I'm about to invite each victorious overcomer to a dinner party. I'm spreading a banquet of tree of life fruit, a supper plucked from God's orchard. Will you show Liz your appreciation? We've missed her. We've missed her, her gifting uh, of making the word come alive. And uh, every week, we're going to have a, a modern reading of, of the brief letter. And I hope you'll you know, join me in sort of uh, preparing for the, the Sunday uh, experience by just reading ahead. It's only six or seven verses, and this was to the church in Ephesus. Um, man, it's good to see you. I hope I don't embarrass anybody, but it's, it's good to see the Aglawates here. It's, it's great to see Hunter and Danita and baby Dallas and great to see Steve and Don and uh, Jeff all the way from Ottawa and his special friend. Um, Vicky is like, Jonathan, just shut up. Um, so glad, so glad to see you. We miss you. It's like a high school reunion without having to, you know, lie about what you do for a living. It's it's good to be together. So we have this uh, senior citizen 
this prisoner, uh, this prophet, pastor, I'm not talking about me, by the way, this friend of Jesus, John, and he has a vision. Uh, I wish there was a stronger word than, than vision. Uh, I hesitate to even use the word because it, it seems like what John is experiencing in this is like a full-bodied, you know, five senses, three-dimensional, Dolby surround sound, IMAX, smell of vision uh, Oculus VR headset experience. Uh, vision is sort of weak sauce to explain what, what John is going through. Paul, actually, in 2 Corinthians, he talked about a man he knew who was caught up to the third heaven, whatever that means, and he heard inexplicable words and secret things. Um, is that what John is experiencing here? Uh, an experience that, that feels even more real than a vision. And John sees something in this experience that is profound. He sees seven golden lampstands, which we'll find out later represents these seven churches in Asia. And then um, he sees this awe-inspiring vision of Jesus. And for those of you who were here last week, where is Jesus in relation to these lampstands? Sorry? In the center. He's in the middle. The risen, reigning, glorified Jesus stands in the middle of his churches. He stands with us here in the middle of Nac. He's with us in all that we go through. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And then Jesus proceeds to dictate these seven messages or letters to each of these seven real historical churches. And each letter has a kind of a certain template. Uh, you could say there's a bit of a formula. There's some repeated phrases. Each letter opens with, with something like, um, these are the words of the one who, in this case, holds the seven stars. Um, it's, it's like how the Old Testament would have said, thus saith the Lord. In other words, pay attention. That's what's going on here, because this is a letter from God himself. And, and biblical historians have noted something interesting, that, that the first century readers would have recognized this similar structure of, of, of this letter was similar to royal edicts that would have been sent out by Persian kings, by, by Roman governors at that time. And those edicts would have started the same way. They would have started by praising the citizens for the, for the good things that they were doing, and then critique them on, on the not-so-good things, and they would have warned them of the consequences if they didn't change their ways, and, uh, and they'd give promises of blessing and prosperity if, if they did make those changes. It's a style that is perhaps representing Jesus himself as royalty, as king, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, and he's speaking to his royal subjects of his perfect, unshakable kingdom. In fact, in the Greek, the word kurios uh, has two meanings uh, in the New Testament. Um, it means emperor and it means Lord. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is kurios, we're saying he is God and he is king. And that is who is dictating these 
letters. Why seven letters? Um, There are more than seven churches in Asia Minor at this time. Remember, numbers mean something in apocalyptic literature. Okay, uh, uh, this, this style of writing. And, and for most of the ancient world, um, seven is the number of, I don't suppose anybody, any nerds? Very good. Taylor? Oh, <laughs> so she can read is what she's saying. Uh, yeah, completeness. Very good. <laughs> you should have really just stopped when you're ahead. Um, So seven churches is a way of saying the complete church, okay? He's addressing seven specific churches, yes, but Jesus is addressing all churches, past, present, future, even New Market Alliance, yes-um, Crosslands, Uh uh-huh, Valley View, yeah, Uh, Cedar View, Uh uh-huh. And guess what? I think we'll see over these seven weeks, these seven churches of Asia, they really embody every major issue which all churches have struggled with since time immemorial, regardless of the culture, regardless of the generation. Now, um, each letter begins in sort of this, this cryptic way. To the angel of Ephesus, right? to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? And uh, Daryl Johnson, who, whose research I've, I've borrowed from, believes this is essentially the guardian angel of these churches. In Daniel 10, we learn that God has assigned guardian angels over nations, over people groups, over uh, here in the last book of the Bible, it seems that there are angels assigned over each congregation. Okay, think about this. And I don't want you to roll your eyes. I hope you, I, I, I hope you in fact, our eyes would be open to the idea that there is an angel or angels assigned to New Market Alliance Church. I mean, that just, that blesses me. That kind of messes with me. Right now, in this place, maybe on our roof, maybe in this room, Uh, an emissary of God fighting on our behalf. Oh, come on, that's goosebumps right there. Remember, we'll, we'll keep coming back to this thesis of revelation that things are not as they seem, or at least they're not only as they seem. Now, Ephesus might be the, might be the first church to which Jesus speaks to partly because it would actually be the first church that the mail carrier would reach after sailing from the island of, very good, Patmos. Or, or maybe Jesus is speaking to them first because Ephesus was by far the most influential of the seven churches, uh, the most influential city. So let me just give you a, a little bit of context. Um, at the time, Ephesus would have been the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, about a quarter million people at that time. It was cosmopolitan, uh, world-class, sophisticated city. It's, it's Vancouver, it's Toronto, it's Tokyo. Um, what Jesus says to them, he is saying to the urban disciple, okay? What does it look like to follow Christ in the context of a city? 
And Ephesus was this major financial center of the ancient world. It had uh, the biggest banks. It, 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 it had the largest monetary deposits. It had the most important seaport in the western coast of Asia. It was international. The nations were represented in Ephesus. It was home to the Panlonian Games, surpassed only in scope by the uh, Olympic Games in Athens. And Ephesus was proud to be the home of the worship of the mother goddess Artemis, uh, uh, as the Greeks called her, Diana, as the Romans called her. This is the fertility goddess, the embodiment of sexuality and lust. And her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world, actually. A uh, 100,000 square feet, two football fields, a uh, 100 marble columns, 55 feet high. Ephesus also had the honor of housing the temple to Caesar uh, uh, Domitian, the, the mass murder of Christians that we talked about last week. Ephesus has this amphitheater that could seat 24,000 people. Are you starting to get the, the picture of, of this place? And it just so happened to be one of the most influential churches, maybe in the history of Christianity. Like, listen to this pedigree. Planted by Paul the Apostle, you've heard of him. Pastored by Priscilla and Aquila. Then led again by Paul for two and a half years. It was the longest he stayed in, in one church. Papa was a rolling stone. Until he was run out of town for preaching against the idolatry of the city. Then young Timothy, you heard of him, he pastored the church. Church tradition says that toward the end of the first century, Timothy was murdered by the Romans, and that's when John, this John, became the pastor of Ephesus, and it's where he wrote the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And uh, it was the center, you could say, the hub of, of this new Christian movement. It wasn't Jerusalem anymore. You know, later the Christian hub would move to Rome, um, and then to Nashville, just, just kidding, it's Colorado Springs. And uh, last cool fact about the church, and I just found this out this week studying, um, uh, you know, historians believe that one of the church's longest standing members was Mary. Yes, that Mary, mother of Jesus Mary. She, she had moved there with John, who you may remember, uh, Jesus from the cross had commissioned John to care for his mother. I mean, can you imagine what it, it would have been like to worship there on Christmas Eve with Mary in the congregation? Hey, Mary, we're doing a, uh, a living nativity scene this year. And we were wondering if you'd consider playing a shepherd. I could play myself. Um, we feel that like you've aged yourself out of that role, unfortunately. What a church! What a pedigree, what an all-star bullpen of, of leadership. So what could Jesus possibly have to say about this influential church? Well, verse 1, from Jesus, Jesus who says he walks among the churches like a, like a holy quality control inspector, you know, investigating, scrutinizing every corner of the church's life who then gives a report on the condition of the church. And he says, I know your deeds. 
And he begins with these words of praise. If you've ever had to give an evaluation, uh, maybe an employee appraisal or feedback, you know it's good to begin with what they're doing well, right? You You start with an affirmation. And Jesus is saying to Ephesus, you're quite a church, actually. You're, you're the kind of church that could run seminars and conferences to show other churches how to be a, a healthy, successful church. You know, I look at the buzz of activity around here, all the programs and the ministries and the, the outreach. It's, 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 and it's not the kind of church like where you're just keeping busy like a country club of insiders. No, all the members are actively involved in in trying to further God's kingdom. I know your hard work, Jesus says. Yours is a discipleship that has cost you something. Uh, It's a discipleship where you have paid the price of your commitment. I know your perseverance, your patient endurance of unfair hardship. I see that you've faced all kinds of oppositions because of me. Um, I see this egomaniac emperor insisting on being worshipped, and you stayed loyal. Uh, this culture that wants you to participate in some weird sex cult of Diana, and you've, you've refused. Um, it, and I know it's meant rejection and scorn from your friends and your family and business all these hardships you have faced in Jesus' name, you've, you've faced it all and you haven't quit. You've faced even the grifters and the, the wolves uh, of, the, of, of Christianity who claim to be apostles, but you wisely sifted them out. You guarded my church, Jesus says. You know, you defended the true gospel. You're a discerning church. You're an orthodox church. I'm, I'm proud of you. Sounds like a pretty great church, actually. Could there possibly be anything wrong at Ephesus Community Creek Church? But I have this against you. Uh Uh-oh. Here it comes. You've left your first love. Ouch. Jesus sees through all the activity... He sees through all the good theology. He tells the church that there's something broken at the core. The church has everything going for it except the one thing Jesus deserves to be their first love. If you are a Christian this morning, particularly a Christian who's been around the block a few times, uh, let me ask you this. Do you remember that first love you had for Jesus when he, when he broke through in your life? That love you had when you came back from camp or that retreat or that altar call experience? I know you work hard for Jesus. I know you're obedient. But is the affection still there? Is the intimacy still there? All throughout Scripture... Our relationship with God is is likened to a relationship between a bride and a groom. He calls out Israel using metaphors of a bride losing interest and being more enthralled with other lovers. Uh, Gods of materialism and comfort and 
financial security. And he says, you're no longer in love with me. And so in the Old Testament, you'll hear God through the prophets plead with Israel to come back. Come back. I remember the devotion of your youth. You know, Jeremiah says, how as a, as a bride you loved me and you followed me. Um, what fault did you find in me that you stayed so far from me? I mean, can't you just hear a lover's pain in that? What did I do wrong? Won't you come back to me? And then in the New Testament, this picture of a bride and groom uh, continues. We are called Jesus' bride. And the whole book of Revelation builds up to this party, this wedding reception, to end all wedding receptions. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. And Paul tells the Corinthian church, I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. This is what happened to this amazing church in Ephesus. They, they had fallen out of pure and simple devotion, out of affection, out of intimacy. They left their first love. Those of you who are married but are long past the honeymoon, um, maybe you're connecting the dots here a little bit, making your own sort of real-world analogy that Jesus has here. Vicky and my courtship, 1995. Uh, some of you um, weren't born then. And uh, <laughs> it was brief. It was intense. We just knew. Uh, we were only engaged a short while, and our, our engagement was short, and our dating was short, and we knew we wanted to spend all our time together after my shift at work. No matter how late it was, I wanted to make my way over to Vicky's. So I had to see her. I, it was a love that sought to please her. And you could say pleasing her was, in fact, my greatest ambition at that time. It was a love that... that kind of put a skip in my step. I wanted others to know about my love. I wanted to freely and, and maybe in retrospect, annoyingly tell everybody about her, anyone who'd listen. I, I know it's the normal course of seasons of marriage, a marriage that is now coming up on 26 years, to not stay in infatuation mode, okay? But there have been too many times, I'm ashamed to say, where I've had to snap out of my complacency, uh, be called out on my complacency. I've had to repent of my laziness of pursuit, um, of tending to the relationship, repent of taking her for granted. Uh, and I'm not proud of that. First love is a love that always has time for your beloved, a love that is attentive. I have this against you, Jesus says. You've left your first love. So for the Christian here this morning or who's listening to this or watching this, I'll ask you again, do you remember 
when you fell in love with Jesus? Ah, do you remember when you were eager to read the Bible because you wanted to know more about your first love? It read like a love letter. Uh, My life as a disciple of Jesus has been a series of, you know, two steps forward, but one step back. There's been dry seasons, intimate seasons, times in my childhood even where it felt like God was so real, so close, so present. My dad, uh, a pastor in this little town of Exeter outside London, he calls the men in, of the church, the men of the church to come before work at 6 a.m. midweek for some weeks of prayer. Eight-year-old Jonathan just had to be part of that. I wanted to pray. I, I wanted to pray for the healing of that young man in our church who was terminally diagnosed. My dad tears up when he reminds me of this story of me begging him to take me with him in the morning. But, you know, he, he goes in my room and sees me sleeping so soundly before the sun was even up. And, you know, he just didn't have the heart to wake me up. So he left to go to the church by himself. And halfway through the prayer meeting, as those men are kneeling at pews, uh, dad looks over and he sees his son kneeling at a pew as well. I got up shortly after and I rode my bike as fast as I could to the church while the sun is starting to come out. I wanted to be praying. I had to be praying. I, I wanted to be with others praying. I was excited to do it. I wanted intimacy with him. I, I, I wouldn't have put it that way as a kid, but that's what was going on. I'm, I'm, I'm rocking out to a band called Petra. All right. Those have just admitted to uh, being old. Good. Uh, I'm singing, don't want to be a, a man pleaser. Want to be a God pleaser. And I meant it. And there are many times lately where as a mature pastor of all things, I, I don't feel the motivation or inclination to get up for my Wednesday prayer meeting. And, and believe me, if there was any biking involved, I'd definitely stay in bed. <laughs> Uh, or even put down the game on my phone to spend time with Jesus, or to choose Jesus over Netflix. I have this against you, Jonathan. You've left your first love. I, I have this against you, New Market Alliance Church. You may just have left your first love. But Lord, I'm working uh, really hard for the church. I, I know but you've lost your first love. But I'm fighting for the truth on all fronts, uh, fighting for the gospel. No, I know, I know, but you've lost your first love. But Lord, we're, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, but we're reaching people in Africa on the radio. And I, I've got letters to show the impact. No, I know, child, thank you. But you've lost the attentiveness, the tenderness, the intimacy of your first love. How does this happen to a church like Ephesus? How does this happen to a church like us? It happens quietly, but gradually, almost in imperceptible shifts of focus. 
We start taking our eyes off Jesus. We start drifting. It happens slowly and then all at once, you could say. Sometimes the trajectory can be just so familiar, it's almost predictable. You know, someone either at church or just before attending church has this transformative encounter with the risen Savior. And they get connected to that church, maybe. And they get baptized. And their story is one of of true transformation. And maybe after a few years of being a a Christian, that, that person has served and joined a small group and studied and and shown themselves faithful, has displayed giftings. They get recruited for for some degree of church leadership. And maybe that person now sees a a bit of the underbelly of church life. Um, The people problems, the politics, the inconsistencies. And perhaps that, that first love gets subtly replaced by organizational, administrative, even political priorities. The replacement of first love has happened without even really being conscious that a replacement has taken place. I mean, after all, we're, we're working for God, right? We're doing noble work. Earl Palmer puts it this way. He says, the first love has been abandoned and in its place is the starchy, high cholesterol diet of activity and church work that will never nourish the human soul. Here's the irony of all of this. The Christians who were once enthralled with Jesus become totally preoccupied with, with the issues and goals that never drew them to Christ in the first place. They get drawn into arguments over the finer points of of theology and, and church governance and programs. You see some variation of this happening in marriages and in friendships. It happens in the life of a disciple, doesn't it? You left your first love. So... With many of us now, perhaps feeling a little convicted, maybe a tad depressed, the question is, what do we do? What do we do? And so if you just give me five minutes as we wrap this up, because Jesus actually gives us a path to restoring what has been relationally lost. And like um, the word restore, it actually involves three words with the re Prefix, okay? Um, We use re words all the time. Uh, Repeat, replay, remind, etc. I ain't no English teacher, all right? But simply put, that the re prefix are generally words that mean uh, back or again, okay? So to go back, retrace your steps. To do something again, repeat it, uh, reuse. Uh, so Jesus asks us to do three re-things. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did first. First, remember, or maybe put it this way, recognize our condition. Um, maybe some of you are wrestling with that this very moment. 
Praise God. That's a good thing. It doesn't feel good in the moment, but it's a good thing. It means God uh, still speaks. It means your heart is still soft. If we have fallen out of love, we need to be honest about it. Confess it. Listen, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't call us to kind of beat ourselves up. He doesn't ask us to work ourselves up in some emotional response or live in guilt. He simply calls us to remember the heights from which we have fallen, recognize where we are today, and, and admit to ourselves and to Jesus. And second, Jesus says, repent. Repent literally means to turn around. Now, not turn around 360 degrees in a circle uh, so you're just facing the same way again. It means turn around 180 degrees so you're facing the opposite way. It's, it's making a U-turn. Um, it's, it's, in this case, shifting our focus back on Jesus again. And sometimes turning actually involves changing your schedule, uh, stopping bad habits, starting new good ones, committing to do whatever it takes to restore intimacy. Confess that we are actually in love with other lords. Uh, in practicality, we may be worshiping work or success or financial security. And, and right now, those things, if we're honest, are more important than the simplicity of loving Jesus. And Jesus even says, we can worship our families. Wait, aren't families a good thing? They are. Isn't the family even created by God, approved by God? It is. But it was never meant to replace God or be in competition for your ultimate affection. Third thing, redo. Go back and do the things we did when we first fell in love. Return, like the prophet says, return to me. I mean, isn't that the advice that we would give to someone in order to restore romance in their marriage? We'd say, go back and do what you did when you were dating, when you were courting. You know, make dates with your spouse. Write love notes. Come home with roses. Uh, can't you just hear sort of in between the lines of this the voice of the divine lover, Jesus, and he's calling out to us, Knack, you used to listen to my voice. You used to make time to be still and, and, and before me and, and seek my face and enjoy my company. You used to take my commandments at face value. You used to... Um, Instead of rationalizing or justifying your way around them, you would weep at your own sinfulness. You'd weep for a lost world around you. You used to believe you couldn't do life without me. Jesus is calling us to do whatever it takes to restore our first love. I know, I know that nothing will satisfy us but Jesus and his love. But I'm, I'm starting to think that nothing satisfies Jesus but us and our love towards him. He, he closes this letter with a, a warning. If you do not repent, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He is the Lord of the church. He is the senior pastor of Nac, the senior, senior pastor. And he has every right to do that. In fact, Jesus has done it, hasn't he? How many churches do you know that are but shells of their former selves? They have all the trappings, but it's like there's no light in them. The lampstand has been taken away. You know, when our simple love for Jesus goes, it's like so does the light. Without our first love, serving just becomes drudgery. Without first love, orthodoxy just becomes nitpicking. Uh, Without first love, hatred for the practice, the practices of the Nickelodeons becomes hatred of the Nickelodeons, you know? Our, our hatred of the ways of the world becomes hatred of the people of the world. But Jesus makes this wonderful promise to those who overcome. Oh, we need to overcome in 2022. To those who remember and repent and redo, Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to each of those the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Isn't it interesting that this story begins in Genesis with a tree of life. It's found in the first pages of the Bible. And again, in the last pages of the Bible, in the beginning, it's in a garden. In, in, the, in the last days, it's in a great city. And in the first creation, because of sin, access to, to this tree of life has been blocked. But in the new creation, in the new city, It's been opened up because of the blood of the lamb. His death and resurrection and victory over death gives us access. And listen to this. It turns out that the tree of life is later revealed in Revelation is Jesus himself. His promise to his first love disciples is more of himself. Thank you, Jesus. Let he who has ears today. Here, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church, what the Spirit is saying to us at NAC. I'm going to invite the team to come back up. We intentionally left some room to respond in worship at the end. And uh, I, 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 would, I would like us to, uh, we say, you know, worship sometimes sounds like love songs, you know, just replace like Jesus is my boyfriend songs. And and that can be flippant. But today I really would like us to sing um, in a way that reignites our first love, to remember Jesus, to fix our eyes on him, to ask that our hearts would be softened and renewed. And I've intentionally left time for a prayer segment. We haven't prayed today, but I wonder if after this first song that there would be one, two, three people who would just maybe line up at the open mic and maybe it would be a prayer of confession even on behalf of all of us, on behalf of a church that at times has lost its first love. And so uh, don't be shy. If you just feel like um, you want to respond in, in prayer, um, um, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with, 
with the church. Paul says that everyone would come with a hymn and an encouragement and a prayer. And so uh, I'd invite you. I haven't, I haven't talked to anyone beforehand. There's no plants in the audience or anything. But um, maybe even while the song begins, there would be those who just uh, line up at the open mic. Will you stand with me as we worship God together? And we'll receive communion later.